Welcome to Jiri Snacks, snackable episodes about the Jiri exam and graduate school admissions. I'm Tyler, the founder of Achievable, and we have an affordable Jiri course that uses memory-based adaptive learning technology to help you remember more of the material that you're studying as you study it, optimize your study schedule for the best results, and get you those results in less time. You can try it out for free by going to achievable.me and clicking the GRE button. And if you like it, use the code podcast to get 10% off. Now let's get started. Today, we've got Candy Lee LaBelle from LaBelle Admissions, excuse me, LaBelle Admissions. Um, And we're going to go over how to apply to an MBA program with a whole step-by-step walkthrough. But first, Candy, if you could just quickly tell us a little bit about yourself and your company, that'd be great. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, it's Candy Lee LaBelle um, of LaBelle Admissions, and I've been an, I'm an MBA admissions consultant. My job is to take the mystery and the misery out of applying to an MBA program. I probably worked with over 600 to 700, I haven't counted in a while, uh, people over the years who've gone on to every business school you can imagine. And it gives me a lot of joy to help people through this complicated process because once you get into an MBA program, it's so transformational. Um, the things that will happen in your life post MBA are very impressive. And it, it makes me happy to help people on that journey. So I'm excited to talk to you today about how to apply. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, first, like, I guess just a little background, right? Like, um, you know, what are sort of the, I don't want to say table stakes, right? Because everybody's different. And we just talked in a different recording about, how you know you could be an artist and like there's like there there shouldn't necessarily be a one size fits all profile and there's probably some stuff you're applying to an MBA program you're not applying to a graduate school program there are some things that you should probably have either somewhere on your resume or you should at least know that you don't have this and it's something that maybe is going to be a question mark for an admissions officer right well yeah I guess you're talking about sort of like what is the background like what kind of background do you have Um, And so an MBA is what we call a post-experience degree, you know, whereas a lot of graduate programs are pre-experience. So you study psychology and uh, you get your undergrad and you go right into your master's pre-experience before you've actually worked as a psychologist. So MBA, it's like you graduate from your degree, whatever it might be, you go work for three, four, six years, and then you apply. So it's called the post-experience. So so in order to apply, you have to have work experience. That's kind of fundamental, right? Um, but it can't, it's not just any type of work experience. So yes, it's open to any type of profile, whether you're an artist, whether you're a consultant, you're a banker, you're a, uh, a constructor. But within that work experience, you have to have certain things that make sense for an MBA. An MBA, is, it, it's a, it's a, degree in business, master's of business administration, the goal is to build the business leaders of the future. So they are looking for people with leadership. So whatever it is that you're working in, whatever job that you're doing, hopefully you're someone who's got, uh, I like like to call it habit of leadership, which is a, a phrase that comes from Harvard Business School. They say they're looking for people with a habit of leadership. And a habit of leadership means that, it doesn't mean that you lead 20 people and they do what you say. But it means that you mm-hmm. raise your hand, that you don't sit around and wait for things to happen or wait for things to get solved. You raise your hand and get them solved. Uh, you raise your hand, you do things, you organize things, you, you, you improve processes. So if you're working in such and such company and your job is to do A, B, and C, and you realize like, wow, I could bring in this Python script and with a little tweaking, we could reduce the time on that from 20 hours to 30 minutes. 
That's leadership. That's what MBAs are looking for, this type of profile that's making things happen. So mm-hmm. if you got that, then you need to apply. That's the, that's right. the plan. <laughs> exactly. And so when you're looking to apply, really, um, the advice I've heard many times, and I think we'll echo here, is you should really start thinking about it a year in advance, right? But preferably even at least six months. But what are the first things you should do in that sort of six to 12 month period? Yeah. So so knowing that applying takes at least a year, possibly longer. Um, so as you know, running Achievable and focusing on the GRE test, you have to have this test. You know, In order to get into an MBA program, you need to complete either the GRE, uh, the GMAT exam, or the executive assessment. Now, these exams are not easy walks in the park. You can't just go, mm-hmm. hey, I'm going to sign up and take it tomorrow. You're going to have to practice. You're going to have to review the test. You're going to have to learn about it. Maybe you need a course. Um so that you can get a score. And all these tests are, are scored on a gradient. Um, and the higher the score, the better. You know, if you want a higher yeah. chance of admission, if you want a higher chance at scholarships, the better the score you can get. And that takes time. So you might, I don't know, as a GRE instructor, what do you say? Three months minimum to get a good score? Six? Yeah, I would say three months. Um, but then the other thing I would also add to what you're saying, and it kind of ties into like researching schools, which is another thing you should be doing during this period, is you should figure out what is the GRE score range or the GMAT score range of the schools you want to apply to or get into, right? You should be looking to kind of set your own target score because there's a very big difference between you know, schools that require a 720 GMAT or in schools that require like a 660 GMAT. And it's a very mm-hmm. different amount of effort to get there, right? Because it's, it's not an That's exponential true. scale, but you can basically assume that it's a lot harder to get from better than 80% of people to better than 90% of people versus mm-hmm. better than 90% of people uh, to better than 95%. Sorry, yeah. in reverse. Go, the higher That's up true. you go, the more difficult it gets, basically, because uh, you're basically trying to scale the mountain of all the other people that are taking this test. <laughs> that, and that's those, true. So you, those people get better and better the higher you go. Yeah, that's true. So you, you would have to think about what your school, your school target list and look at uh, the school, the test, the, the score range there. And you're going to be aiming to be at least higher than average. So if you're aiming for Stanford, right. you might be looking at a 720 GMAT or higher, depending on a lot of different factors, which is why my advice, and I got this advice from this wonderful one of my mentors in the industry, Linda Abraham of Accepted. Uh, she used to say when they would say to her, what GMAT score do I need? Her answer was always, well, you need an 800, which is the highest score. Because if you're going to shoot for something, why not shoot for the highest score? Um, So the higher, the better. So as you know, it takes minimum three months. Uh, Often, if you did not study in an English-speaking university, you'll have to take an English exam as well. Much easier Mm -hmm. than the GRE or the GMAT, but it does take some time and effort. So these are things you need to be planning for six months, even a year ahead of time. Get those out the way so you can worry about everything else, right? Right. And probably you want, like, I would argue at least that you probably want to study for them somewhat separately, especially because having good English skills is going to be really helpful on the GMAT or the GRE because they're both English language tests that have a Mm -hmm. verbal component that tests a lot of English language things. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I would like my personal recommendation, uh, just like as someone who's, this is not my job, unlike you, uh, is I would probably do get the English test out of the way first mm-hmm. before focusing as much on the GRE or GMAT because um, mm-hmm. that's a, like a foundational skill that'll help you with that. Yeah, I don't. I usually advise the opposite, <laughs> and maybe it's because oh, I, I maybe it's because I work with a lot of non-native speakers. But I usually say that 
if you can manage your GRE prep and you manage your GMAT prep, a lot of what you're doing, like reading comprehension, crosses over to the TOEFL exam. And the TOEFL exam mm. is so much easier. So after all this hard, hard work on these, you know, really tough tests, you go do the TOEFL, it's like, oh, this is so easy because you've already done all the hard prep work, but it could go either way. Either way, don't forget about it. That's the thing that people forget. They're like, oh yeah, I forgot I was supposed to take that test too. So. <laughs> yeah, you got to have that score. And that score yeah. is more like a requirement, right? Yeah. So whether the GMAT or the GRE or the executive assessment, you you hire the better with the TOEFL or ELTS is the other English exam. It's a benchmark. If they say you need 100, you need 100. You don't need to be like, oh, I got 100, but I can get 110. Let me try again. It's like, nope, waste your time watching Netflix. Do not waste your time retaking that test because if they're asking for 100, 100 is enough, you know, so. Got it. Great. So then, what's next in your sort of your um, research portion? Okay, so you're you're studying this, you're studying your exam and whatnot. That takes time. So something you can do alongside of that is doing your school research. So, in order to apply to a, an MBA and to be accepted, you need to kind of know where you're going to apply, what the different schools are, what's out there. A lot of people just go to the rankings and are like, "Oh, I'll apply to these six that are on the rankings," but that's really not enough. You need mm -hmm. to then dive in, and you need to know. Uh, Kellogg, you know, how is Kellogg different from Ross and how is Ross different from Tuck? And well, let's look at Berkeley. Um, so you got to spend some time researching the schools, talking to students, um, looking at career reports, you know, learning about the culture so that you can kind of get a sense what makes sense for you and where would you fit in, right? You eventually will come to a list of schools and you know, like, these are my dream schools. You've been studying for your test prep. Now you can kind of match. It's like, oh, here's my dream school. Their test score is there. I better amp it up. I better hire. I better hire higher achievable because I need to get a right. higher score. Um, and that's kind of an ongoing process. So like a good year before you apply, you're doing the test prep, you're doing the school research, you're talking to students. Um, and then you get to about six months before the deadline. And the first deadlines round one are in September. So usually about February, March, April. Uh, you can start actually actively moving on your application. And there's different steps. So one is your resume. You have to update your resume. Um, and an MBA resume is not the same as a job resume. So a job resume might have an objective. Uh, if you work as an, an aviation engineer, it might have tons of jargon about wind thrust and percentiles and all this stuff. And that's lovely, but it's not going to mean anything to an admissions person. So you have to take your right. resume and convert it into this MBA document, right? So you take all the things that you've done uh, in your aviation engineering career, your pharmaceutical career, whatever it might be, and you translate into what I like to call the eyes. So show us the impact you've had. Show us where you took in innovation, uh, where you took initiative, you raised your hand, mm -hmm. uh, where you where you had um, where you innovated, created something new. So that's kind of like, rather than just saying, you know, my job is, you know, I advise companies on investing in South America, you'd actually have something more specific, like led a milk company in Peru to do X, Y, and Z that resulted in this deal that led to 20,000 jobs, you know, whatever it might be. Right. Um, yeah. So you've got to work on your resume. So that's a big, a big chunk of it. Um and the resume, you I like to do the resume early because a lot of times when you're applying to MBAs and you reach out and you send, uh, you know, a, a note to admissions or you fill out, the first thing they say is send us your resume. So you want to have something ready to send them. So it's nice to do the resume early. Uh, well, it thing, also probably gets you mm -hmm. thinking about kind of 
what your positioning is for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of, as much as you might be like, I really think of myself as an entrepreneur or whatever, and that's what I want to do. Like if your resume is basically like, I went to Google for four years and like did what my boss told me, that doesn't necessarily scream entrepreneur, right? So yeah. you have to, you have to either position your resume accordingly where you Absolutely. say, I've led and initiated all these projects at mm-hmm. Google, or you need to say, okay, I'm not going to do the entrepreneur angle. I'm going to do like the product strategy angle or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Well, what I, I think the point is figuring out who you are and what you've done. And that is very interesting that you would say that because I do have a lot of clients who come to me and they say, my post MBA goal is entrepreneurship. And the first thing I ask is like, well, are you an entrepreneur now? Did you do you run a company now? Did you run one in university? Maybe you ran one in high school. I had one guy who started selling bread his little village, there was no bread shop. So he'd ride his bike to the other village, bring the bread back and sell it to all the places. He was 12. The kid was a natural born entrepreneur. Like it was in his blood. That's awesome. So I'm kind of go, I'm going through that. If you don't have it, another question is, well, maybe your father or your mother or your grandmother runs a company. If you don't have that, well, then we look at the intrapreneurship. Okay. You've been working at Google doing X, Y, and Z, but within that, have you been entrepreneurial in the sense of leading new ideas, innovating? So yeah, if you want to be an entrepreneur, we're digging around to make sure that everything in your resume is kind of screaming those skills of innovation, problem solving, quick action, uh, negotiating, collaborating, this sort of entrepreneurial skills. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So the resume is a big project. You got to work on that. Right. Yeah. Once you've done um, the resume, what do you uh, or I guess yeah, what's sort of after the resume? So is sort it, of, that is a recommendation, you think? Yeah. Well, it's not necessarily. It's more like going to it because remember you're still studying for GMAT so GMAT's ongoing and school research is ongoing and you're starting to work on your Mm -hmm. resume you got to think about your recommenders so for most business schools you need two recommenders a couple of them uh, London Business School Columbia MIT are now asking for one recommender but you still Mm. have to have someone to ask and so it's a good thing to think about as early in the process because if for whatever reason You've kind of been just doing your own thing. You haven't developed relationships with senior people. That's going to be a problem. So I always like to advise would-be applicants, make sure you're wooing somebody. Make sure there's some senior person that you're going to for advice. You're going, you know, that you're um, getting sort of mentoring from them. And a lot of times it might be your direct supervisor. A lot of companies have in-house mentors. Like you you have your supervisor, but like you're also assigned a mentor. Um just making sure you're keeping these relationships going that um, so that when it comes time to ask them to do this recommendation, which is a big ask, is writing recommendations is not simple. It's not an easy thing that they can do in a couple of hours, that they're mm-hmm. not surprised and that they're ready to do it and that they're happy to do it. You want to make sure that you're building that relationship. Right. And then when you're asking for these letters of recommendation, what are some tips for getting what you want, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it it depends on if you're in a, an industry where it's common. If you're coming from consulting or certain industries, everyone has an MBA and your supervisors have been through the process and they kind of know it. A lot of times that's not the case. You're coming from an industry where maybe they don't know how to do it. So it's very important that you, um, first of all, you got to think about the right person to ask, right? When you make the ask, you need to do it as very, con- you know, have lunch with them, go to coffee, explain to them what's going on, why you want to do this, your ambitions. And then you ask them and then you have to, you have to like, I like to tell my clients to prepare like a, a welcome kit, which explains to them first and number one, a letter of recommendation 
is not a letter. Like, it's not a letter. And I think that's the first thing that shocks people. They're like, what? It's not dear Bob. No, it's like a series of questions that they have to answer. So the recommender has to answer four from two to six questions, depending on the school. So you prepare them, you show those questions. So you're going to have to answer these types of things about me. And I hope you feel comfortable with that. Here's my resume. Here's a copy of my goals. Uh, Here are the deadlines. And you kind of like make sure that they know what they have to do um, so that it's not a surprise for them. Well, and so they hit your deadlines. Oh yeah. They have to hit the deadlines. That's true. That's another thing. So you have to remember deadlines for round one are in September. What happens right before September? August. Um, People are on vacation, especially in Europe where they might go for vacation for a month or longer. If that's the case Mm -hmm. with your recommender, you need to suss out that recommendation in July. Um, Round two is the first week of January. No one wants to write a recommendation letter over over the the winter holidays, they just don't want. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to figure that out in October, November. So yeah, the deadlines are very important. You need to be very strategic with how you approach your recommenders and how you manage them. Right. Got it. Yeah. So then that's sort of, we've, we've gone timeline wise, you know, we were six to 12 months before and then, then we were six months before. Now what's sort of coming up as you kind of get into the three to six months window before application season. So definitely by about six months before deadline, you need to know where you're applying. You have, hopefully you've done the school research and you have narrowed it down. I am applying to these five schools in round one. Um, And then you need to sort of, sort of deep dive into doing the application. So let's say you're going to apply to five schools. You need to set up a timeline. Which one am I going to apply to first? Which one am I going to apply to second? Um, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to apply to Columbia first. Wonderful. Columbia's essays are this, this, and this. So you start working on those essays and Columbia has a very big goals essay, which is one reason it's nice to do Columbia first, um, because that goals essay becomes a foundation for so many other schools. So Mm -hmm. about six months out, you've got your school list. You're starting on that first set of essays, you know, not deep diving yet because there's still some time. Um, but you're starting to get everything organized. You open the application form, you're working on the data form, I feel like I should say dun, 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 data form, because this is a part that everyone forgets about. They're like, oh, the essays. And the reality is that you also have to do this data form, which is sort of the online application. And usually hidden inside the data form could be two, three, up to 10 other essays. Thank you, London Business School. Um, they have they have, 10, they have 10 essays hidden inside. It's crazy. Um, so it's something you're going to be working on. So once you figure out that first school, you're going essays, data form, calling up your recommenders, essays, data form, editing, talking to the recommenders in sort of this process until you, let's say it takes you about a month and a half to finish the first school. And then you take a breath and you move to the second school and you you repeat the process. Right. And you're saying like, and this is probably a good thing to tell your, the people that are writing your letters of recommendation It's definitely a good thing for you to do for yourself. Uh, save everything that you write as a standalone Google Doc because you will probably need it again, <laughs> right? And you your ab- recommender, you absolute- if they're writing yeah. multiple letters of recommendation to multiple schools yeah. for you, they should probably save what they write so they don't have to redo it every time. So this is a really good topic. So most business schools, I would say a good 90% at this point, are using what's called the GMAC letter of recommendation. So this is this is created by the GMAC, which is the company that owns the GMAT exam. It consists of four questions. Actually, it was originally created by Stanford back in the day. But anyway, it's called the GMAC Letter of Recommendation. Uh, Mm -hmm. Four questions. One is, how do you know the applicant? 
and what's the context of the relationship. Number two is how do the applicant stand out to other people? In other words, what are the applicant's strengths? Number three is uh, tell a time that you gave the applicant critical feedback and how do they respond? And number four is, is there anything else we should know? So that's kind of the foundational questions. Now, schools use it differently. Kellogg throws in three extra questions for fun, apparently. Uh, NYU <laughs> has an extra question. Berkeley has an extra question. Harvard uses those questions, but they reduce the, the spacing to question number one to like 10 words. So like, even though the questions are the same school by school, the variation is so much. So what I usually tell my applicants, uh, well, it's reduced to uh, 300 characters with spaces, which is like 10, 15 words, something like that. I don't remember exactly. But, yeah, but, the, but the point yeah, being, like, imagine if, you, imagine, yeah, imagine if your recommender wrote the answer to how do you know the, the applicant uh, in a hundred words, and then they go to cut and paste into Harvard, and like, oh my God, uh, it doesn't fit. You know, so you have to know that so you can prepare them for that. So what I usually tell my clients is that let the app, let the recommender know you've got these four core questions, but here are my schools and here's how the questions differ. So why don't you write the first set of uh, questions and then you can kind of cut and paste into the other ones as you go along. And it kind of makes right. the recommender feel better because you're not just saying, hey, I need six letters of recommendation for six different schools but you're like i need six but you can kind of put all your effort in number one and the others will be easier so in in some right. way it, do, it definitely does help to have similar questions they used to all be different which was a nightmare right well and so that's actually i think that whole process you just described is also a very good idea for your essays right which mm -hmm. is kind of why you recommend doing columbia first is because it's a more it's something that's a good foundational layer for a bunch of other essays that you're going to end up doing yeah and it point. has the earliest deadline that's enough they have something called early decision um but so with essays the same thing i always advise my clients you want to do your essays or your schools in general one by one you don't want to cross write like well i'm going to write the Ross essays, and I'm also going to write Wharton's essays, and then, then I'm going to do uh, Berkeley's essays, and I'm going to kind of run them all together. That doesn't make any sense, because first of all, you need to be like immersed in the school that you're writing. You need to be thinking about what professors, what classes, the culture, the students, all that. So if you're doing several at a time, it's super easy to get confused. At the same time, if you do one by one, what happens? So let's say that you're doing um, Columbia first. So they've got a 500 words goals essay. You have to dig down into that goals essay. Now, when you move to Wharton, there's also a 500 words goals essay, but it's broken up into also why Wharton. So you, it's not a cut and paste. It's you're taking the foundational ideas and you're kind of reusing those ideas. You still have to do a ton of research. You just don't have to do as much research. And the same thing if right. you do another school, if you do, if you do Stanford, the essay is what matters most and why nobody else is asking that. But if you do all that soul searching and and sort of like um, soul searching and blood sweating or whatever you want to call it to get that essay on paper, that process is going to help you then write your MIT cover letter more easily. You're not using the same words, but mm -hmm. you've done the thought process or you move to right. uh, Harvard's essay. So it's not cut and paste, but it's like, well, you, I guess you're cutting and pasting the ideas and the research, but not the essays themselves. And I think it's also important to to re-emphasize in this um you know you, you really should be when you're both making your school list and also when you're writing your essays to these schools you should be thinking about what the school's personality is and what they are looking for right um mm -hmm. i 
if you took an essay that you applied, if even if it was the exact same question, an essay to Harvard and an essay to Stanford should not necessarily be about the same things about yourself, right? Not necessarily. Mm. Just like because the schools maybe want different things. I don't know. That's kind of – Yeah, I'm I mean, curious if you disagree with that. I would – yeah, I would I would disagree to a point because in, in essence – you are the same, right? And if the whole idea is to share your story, you can't kind of like change your story. But yeah, there might be certain subtleties. Like for example, Stanford has a question that says, why Stanford? Well, to answer that question, you need to connect with what Stanford. Now, Harvard doesn't ask that question because Harvard's like, yeah, we're Harvard. We, you know, we know why you want to be here. You don't, you don't need to tell us because we're Harvard. So, you know, <laughs> of course at Stanford, you're going to gear it one way and Harvard in another way. But as far as like connecting to a school's philosophy, I, I, I think often of the European schools. So INSEAD in France, for example, is a 10-month super intensive MBA, um, really intense academically, but really intense socially. So you might be waking up at 6 a.m. to go to a study group, and then you're going to go to a sports thing, and then you have some classes and a, and a, and a presentation and a recruiter. You might not finish up until you're at a party in one of the chateaus. You might finish up at 2 a.m., and then you start again. So you have to have sort of this energy to kind of survive it at INSEAD. So I always suggest to people, like, show energy, show you know, this, this gumption to eat up life and, 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 and to enjoy things. At the same time, INSEAD has 90 different nationalities on campus. You better show that you got an open mind and you're kind of like cool with that. Even if you grew up in Texas and you never left Texas in your entire life and all you know is Texas, you better start digging around in your profile for that open mindedness that that uh, mm. that that will show a fit with INSEAD. Right. Got it. So then once you're kind of you've you've selected your schools and you're you're you've got sort of your timeline for doing your applications and essays. What's next after that? Um, okay. Well, you apply, I guess. <laughs> you finish. You right. finish. Okay. So let's say it's September fifth. Mm -hmm. Harvard is the first application. That's all you submit. Harvard. You pull. You know. You go over. You do your last minute check on the other because you're you're doing this over a period of time, right? So you might do Harvard and you finish it in June, even though you're not applying until September. So anyway, September's here. You you submit Harvard. You go and you do your last check of Wharton, which hopefully you already wrote. You submit Wharton. Chicago Booth's usually next. Boom, send them. Then Stanford. So you kind of like are sending them in order as they come along. Mm -hmm. um, and then you wait. This is, this is the fun part. You wait for an interview, right? So depending on the school, you might get an interview three weeks, four weeks, six weeks. It really just depends on the school and their own timing. If you get the interview, great. You've passed the first stage. They like you. They think you'd be a good fit, but now you got to go through this next interview stage. So you have to prep for that. And each school does in interviews a little bit differently, whether it's done by an alumni and it's what we call the blind interview. They haven't seen your documents um, or sometimes it's done by admissions. Harvard is done by admissions and they know every detail of your profile and they're going to hit you hard with questions and follow ups. Um, at London Business School, you have to do a presentation, you know, so each school has a different type of interview. You prep for that, you go through it, and then you wait. And if you're mm -hmm. lucky, you get that, you get that notice that you've been admitted. And then you're invited to the happy you're, Zoom call. Yeah, exactly. I love uh, Harvard's letter when you're admitted. It says something, what is the wording? It's something like, uh, yes, we see the leader in you. Welcome to Harvard. <laughs> oh, my God. So it's very That's cute. Funny. And then and then Stanford calls you up on the phone and... You know, it's it's very nice. And then hopefully you get admitted and, and then you just deal with like, which one do I choose? And 
That sort of, there's lots of other things. If you got waitlisted, well, we deal with that. If you got rejected, there's ways to deal with that. And Right. Yeah. Anything I, I, on the timeline front, anything else, you know, maybe around like waitlisting timing and, and things like that that you want to cover before we wrap up here? Um, so waitlisting is happening now. In fact, I just made a post. I wrote a post today about waitlisting because um, now we're we're recording this in in uh, late March, twenty twenty. Okay, one more. So so, so right now is March, it, which means so yeah. Uh -huh. So March it means that decisions are coming out for round two, and waitlist is coming out for round two. Now waitlist for round two means that you might not know if you're in or out until July. So now waitlist means uh -huh. wait. There's a there's a really long, and depending on the school, you have different things you can do. Some schools will say send us an update. Some schools, the really jerky schools who are just you know evil, will say send us a new essay and some new videos. And you're like, ah, why do I have to do that? Uh, other schools just say <laughs> sit back and wait, which also is its own level of torture. Um, but there's different ways <laughs> to manage. All torture, they're, they're all torture, but you you manage it in a different way, and and you. Um, Hopefully you get off, people get off a waitlist. That's another, if, you know, if we think about myths and applying, people say, oh, I'm waitlist. I'll never get off. That's not true. You, you can definitely get off for sure. Uh, and if you get rejected all along the way, uh, which happens when you're dealing, especially if you're dealing with what we call the M7 or the top 10 schools in the world, rejection is a part of the process. And it is possible that you will end at the end of your application process with all rejections. That is not an uncommon outcome. If that's the case, you need to have a plan B and you need to get up and try again because also reapplication. Why not? Reapplicants get in all the time. Right. Got it. Oh. Very cool. Well, thank you so much. This is Ben Giri Snacks, hosted by Tyler from Achievable with Candy Lee Laval from Laval Admissions. And Achievable has a great online Giri course that you can try for free by visiting achievable.me and use the code podcast to get 10% off if you like it.